Welcome to the Books and Bites podcast. Each month, we bring you book recommendations and discuss the bites and beverages to pair with them. I'm Carrie Green, and I'm here with my co-hosts, Michael Cunningham and Adam Wheeler. Hello. Hey. So today we're talking about the fourth prompt in the 2022 Books and Bites Reading Challenge, Biographies. And I know we have somewhat mixed feelings about biographies among us. <laughs> Don't look at me. <laughs> hey, this is this is audio. No one no one would have known that. <laughs> yeah, I mean I think they would. <laughs> Your tone seems very pointed right now. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean biographies are not my go to at all. I mean, nonfiction isn't really. Mm-hmm. And when it's nonfiction, I don't know, just the thought of someone reading something that someone wrote about themselves or wrote about, like, someone else, I, it, I feel like it's missing something for me. A lot of the times I think of biography as not being really narrative. It's just being descriptive and like a history book. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I mean, I understand that. Like I I think I gravitate more naturally to memoir, which often is is more narrative or, you know, more descriptive about a life. I mean, like descriptive through the senses rather than through facts. Mm-hmm. For me, I think I appreciate biographies that yeah, rely less on kind of dry history but really bring the person to life. How about you, Michael? Yeah, I mean, I, I definitely get what Adam's saying, mm-hmm. you know, and, and you know, and I love, I love history, but you know, I think going back to high school and college, and you think it's just a repetition of facts, and it seems daunting, and a lot of them are doorstoppers. Yeah. <laughs> so you know, it's it, it seems like it's a challenging one to tackle, mm-hmm. but I, I do like to. I've been kind of gravitate toward memoirs. I recently, you know, read Dave Grohl's memoir, The Storyteller, mm-hmm. and just how he just kind of, yeah, it's definitely more narrative, and he takes you to these little snapshots in his life and kind of recount them, and through his own view, you know, that I can get, but where if you, like, read a biography on George Washington or Lincoln, and you just kind of get, he was born yeah, <laughs> in Illinois, and, you know, and a lot of stuff's been rehashed so much times when we've been through it. But that's what, you know, it's a challenge, right? Yeah. So so we're trying something different. Yes. And and I would also remind everyone to look at the notes in the back and <laughs> and take that into consideration when you're reading because a lot of times if there's footnotes in a biography, it'll take up a lot of that page yes. count. <laughs> You'll go from like 350 to 200 real quick. <laughs> yeah. There is also always the uh, option of an audio book. So mm-hmm. if you are really stressed out at the thought of sitting down and reading through like a compendium of facts about a person's life, like <laughs> feel like you're back and doing a grade school report. If you download an audio book, you can just listen and, you know, tune into the parts you think are interesting. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so, I mean, who would have thought I found a way to... Well, actually, I didn't. I didn't. 
I was going to read a normal standard biography, but Michael suggested Junji Ito's Cat Diary, and it is a manga. It's an autobiographical manga, and it's so all that talk yeah. about it being a challenge and and trying something new. Listen, the challenge can also be. Finding the stories that you connect with, because that fosters your love of reading, and I, as a librarian, support that. So. Well, I'm just giving you a hard time. I actually, I think I fudged mine a little bit, too, so, so I'm totally with you. Wow. Feeling like we all did, maybe. I yeah. did a true biography. Yeah, so I am supporting Michael's collection development <laughs> by reading this book. Thank you. So, yes. Okay. <laughs> Junji Ito's Cat Diary, Yan and Moo, is a comedic autobiographical manga following the master of horrors move into a newly built house along with his fiance and unexpected company in the form of two uncanny cats. While the short stories in the book are built on true events, Ito plays with the lines between fantasy and reality such as concluding one of his cats laying like a long loaf in a dark room resembled a giant slug. Ito is credited with a talent for writing the uncanny. In an included interview, he is quoted as saying the word uncanny in the sense of describing something unsettling, unknown, or unfamiliar applies to things you fear. I suppose it's not the fear of a big scary monster rushing to attack you, but the fear of feeling like something you don't understand is creeping closer and closer. End quote. <laughs> Honestly, you can feel this uncanniness translated into the comedic horror of Cat Diary. This is supposedly the first time Junji Ito has lived with cats, you know, when we're starting at the beginning of the book, leading to hilarious misunderstandings, exaggeratedly visceral responses to weird cat anatomy and behavior, and trying entirely too hard to win feline affection. <laughs> the beginnings of the story sees uh, Ito nearly lusting for aspects of his newly built home, such as the pristine walls and floors. This fantasy is soon punctured when time came for cat prep, temporarily tacking sheets of plastic to the lower half of walls to prevent clawing, followed by finely scratched floors from running cats, as any cat owner knows, the dreaded zoomies leads to frantic running, sharp turns, <laughs> and jumps that inevitably result in claws touching all surfaces. Cats can be difficult to understand for the uninitiated. Folks who are looking for the animated response of dogs can read apathy, and others who look for human expression in feline faces might mistakenly read a sense of omniscience, contempt, or outright sociopathy. <laughs> Ito really builds a sense of unknowing in his illustrations of the cat's unblinking, expressionless faces, which leaves the reader to draw their own conclusion about the cat's thoughts. Or lack thereof. They're not always as wise as we assume they are. <laughs> I'd say one of the funniest stories included is when Ito, in a bout of childish humor, tricked his wife span of the book's pretty long. I'm pretty sure they were married by this point. He tricks her with some freshly bought prank poop. Going so far as to trick her into thinking the cat's pooped on the stairs and then throwing it directly at her. And of course, he's paid back doubly when, upon finding a pile on his own sometime later and assuming his wife was seeking revenge, 
He grabbed it, only to meet fresh horror <laughs> any cat owner is familiar with. The shocking, chunky squish of suddenly coming into contact <laughs> with unexpected cat vomit. Uh. Yeah, it's, it's nasty. I've not talked a whole lot about the stories they're in. It's a lot of short stories that are based in real events, and it includes, aside from the author, you learn a whole lot through it. Overall, Junji Ito's Cat Diary is an autobiographical manga that leans into the idea that comedy and horror are two sides of the same coin. And it's chock full of insights into the author's life and way of thinking with an entirely entertaining delivery. I don't want to give spoilers, but do be warned it takes a sad turn at the very end. I was both teary-eyed and very angry at Michael for recommending the book and not warning me about that part. I'm over it now, mostly. However, it's still entirely worth anyone's time to read and would honestly be appropriate for both teen and adult readers. <laughs> as far as a nice, refreshing beverage, to go with this, indulge Junji Ito's love for the Lovecraftian with an Earl Grey bourbon pomegranate punch. Aptly titled <laughs> Under the Scarlet Sea. This dark scarlet drink mixes fruity flavors, the bitterness of tea and bourbon, and some intrigue through club soda and black tapioca pearls. Find the recipe at feastintime.com. We'll have the link on our... That sounds really fancy. It does. My only complaint is that I hate bourbon. (laughs) So I'd need to touch it up with something different. (laughs) Or, you know, if... You probably you wouldn't need could, the bourbon. I yeah. mean, it's got so much other stuff. Yeah. It could just be a tea drink mm-hmm. if you want to go an alcoholic. Mm-hmm. What were the cat's names? Did he? What was it? The short for them is Yawn and Moo. So I think Yawn is the one that his fiance already had. And then she convinced him to adopt another long-haired cat named Moo to keep each other company. So <laughs> Yawn is funny. Um, his first interaction with the cat i want to say he says it's the one with the accursed face you see it come out of its cage and has like an abnormally long swoopy neck and there's like an animated sound what are onomatopoeia is that what it is mm-hmm. like a whoop. Uh, <laughs> and he notices the cat has a pattern on its like it's a white cat and it's got a black pattern on its back that looks like a skull it's just really leaning into horror author meeting these animals for the first time and bringing his own thoughts to the process of how awkward and strange it is and how otherworldly they feel to someone who is used to dogs. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's also a really cute part where <laughs> he and his wife have gone to bed and they have their own little separate beds. Maybe that's a cultural thing. I don't know. But (laughs) the cats have both gone to his wife's bed and he cannot do anything for the life of him to get both of, to get either of them to come sleep with him. So he just lays there in his deep jealousy and seething. (laughs) But in the middle of the night, he is very heartwarmed to, to feel some fur behind him. He's like, Oh, the little younger cats come to sleep with me. He's so excited. And he wakes up in the morning later and is still happy and excited. And he goes to say hi to the cat. And it turns out it was just like a sweater that was laid on the back of the bed. <laughs> uh, 
<laughs> well, that's better than it could be. I was thinking like hairball or something. Yeah, yeah no, that's vile. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And that would be cold and wet and nasty. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, you know, it sounds it sounds like a good book. I might read it for for the manga challenge. Yeah, that's really good. My recommendation for a biography this month is You Never Forget Your First, a biography of George Washington by Alexis Coe. When people think of George Washington, usually the first things that pop into their mind are the infamous cherry tree incident and his famous wooden teeth, which are both completely false. And if you ever read one of his numerous other biographies, you probably have a picture of him as a deified masculine military hero and accomplished statesman. The author refers to these previous biographers, most notably Ron Chernow, who are predominantly white males, as the quote-unquote Thymen, referring to their overt obsession with Washington's virility and masculinity, constantly focusing on his quote-unquote well-developed and muscular thighs. Coe set out, sets out to change the image and narrative of a mythical first president that has been perpetuated repeatedly with his new biography. This book helps to break him out of the mold his previous biographers have set for him. Coe looks at Washington's life through a different lens and focuses on the aspects of his life that are less talked about. Instead of retreading over his past military campaigns, she looks at his other critical work during the war, like his wartime propaganda campaign and his work as a spymaster. Washington would collect stories of British soldiers' war crimes and very intentionally place them in newspapers, and even talked the Continental Congress into funding his own paper called the New Jersey Journal. Washington realized he needed a better spy network after Nathan Hale was caught and executed. Co-named Agent 711, he was spy master for the famous and successful Copa Ring led by Benjamin Talmadge. This book gives you a real sense of the complexity of George Washington the man. He was a man who blundered into firing the first shots of the French and Indian War, yet he was also quite the savvy businessman and statesman. He bought huge tracts of prime real estate as a surveyor before the war, owning thousands of acres of land in the Shenandoah Valley by the age of 18. During the war, he played hardball with both General Howells, his propaganda work swayed public opinion, and his successful work as a spymaster were all integral in winning the war. During his presidency, George was a man who railed against partisanship in America, yet became increasingly partisan. His two terms were anything but a smooth ride. Members of his cabinet were out to get him, especially Jefferson, creating newspapers that were anti-administration. From letters and notes included in the book, the founding fathers threw a lot of shade at each other and were quite petty. So, from the frenemies section, I would like to read what Thomas Paine thought of Washington before and after he was president. So, before the war, quote, I shall never suffer a hint of dishonor or even a deficiency of respect to you to pass unnoticed, unquote. After Washington became president, quote, and as to you, sir, treacherous in private friendship, for so you have been to me, and that in a day of danger, in a hypocrite in public life, the, role, the world will be puzzled to decide whether you are an apostate or an imposter, whether you have abandoned good principles or whether you ever had any, unquote. Whoa. That was cold. <laughs> that cool. And it probably didn't help that uh, Washington left Thomas Paine to kind of rot in a French jail cell during the French Revolution either. So there were some tough feelings there. Yeah, maybe, maybe yeah. so. Washington was also someone who lived well above his means. He had really expensive European tastes with no money to support them. 
because he had a large amount of debt, which was exasperated because he refused to take a salary during his wartime service and the numerous crop failures the Mount Vernon experienced. Also, the author does not let him off the hook or gloss over the fact of his hypocrisy of his fight for freedom and independence while at the same time owning hundreds of slaves. He personally beat them, and he fervently chased on a judge and escaped slave for a very long time. Washington talked about emancipation, but did nothing during his life. He kept passing the buck, not even freeing his own, leaving that for Martha to do. So I, I found this overall to be a concise and highly accessible biography with wry humor sprinkled throughout. And while it does make big leaps throughout his life, it is still makes for a great entry for anyone looking for a different view of the first U.S. president. So one of George Washington's favorite foods was hoe cakes swimming in honey. And this book included a recipe for it in the back couple of chapters. It calls for a half a teaspoon of after dry yeast, two and a half cups of white cornmeal, three to four cups of water, one large egg, vegetable oil or lard, and salt. Making about 15 hoe cakes, serve the way Washington has had his served, with plenty of melted butter and honey, washed down with three cups of tea. <laughs> yeah, I do like the idea of a book that looks at him in a more realistic context. Like, <laughs> almost like it's the burn book about George Washington. Yeah. Like, <laughs> we have deified these founding fathers... And and they were just they were men and they were petty, very petty. Like Jefferson, you know, he would collude with these people to write these papers and articles about Washington. But like, I would never do that. But everybody knew he was doing it. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's I mean it, we're seeing the same stuff today. I mean, it's a lot of same stuff going on today that went on in the late 18th century. But it's much more public, yes. and it also, it seems like it's also a lot more a part of our everyday lives, you know, because it's on, we're on social media, we're oh, online yeah. all the time, so maybe it just feels a lot more persistent because we see more of it. Yeah. Yeah. But it does sound like a lively biography. Oh, yeah, yeah. Does the book talk about what his dentures were actually made of? Oh, yeah. Because um, I've heard a theory about it, and it fits into him being an unapologetic slave owner. <laughs> slave's teeth? Yeah. Animal teeth and hide? Some of his own that have fallen out? If they were, <laughs> a lot of them were not able to be reused, but some, he did use some of them again to make his dentures. Wow. But I mean, just think about it. When teeth mouth saliva yeah that ain't gonna work <laughs> <laughs> and it's good that even though he has been written about so much that like you said some of that stuff you know has just been ignored by some biographers yeah. so it's good that it's coming out now one, one of the interesting things was like how they just kind of really demonized his mother in a lot of these biographies mary huh. washington and you know, she was like this kind of like, I don't know how to put it nicely, you know, this kind of shrieking, shrill woman who was very a tough taskmaster. Mm -hmm. Well, they didn't have the best relationship, it seemed like, because he definitely didn't visit her very much later in life. But like, I mean, there's really no evidence for this. I mean, he definitely learned a lot from her, but like, mm -hmm. there's no evidence that like she was this terrible person that he was trying to overcome, mm -hmm. like a lot of biographies apparently include in there 
maybe they're like there was an early account of her like that and then everybody just keeps repeating it yeah or? there was there was like a there was like a very vague statement i think they keep repeating and then they just kind of kept drawing conclusions uh-huh. from it but there's like real no evidence mm-hmm. of anything or yeah maybe some historians inserted their own opinions about their own mothers and really just to go <laughs> that, that's probably yeah yeah that's kind of what i was thinking maybe but probably there wasn't it kind of ties into the book that i'm going to talk about where it was about partially about an 18th century woman and there was no historical record of her yeah. you know yeah. it was all through the men yes. in her life and there's another book by Jill Lepore about Benjamin Franklin's sister which is very similar like she you know the, she left very little record yeah. of her own life so you know they just get their stories get yeah. twisted or erased yeah. yeah it's just like and they're just kind of relying on letters mm-hmm. to correspondence and then like yeah. one of like I think was it a lot of letters between Martha and George are they, they're gone. She hid him or destroyed him or something. So there's a lot of stuff we still don't even know. Mm-hmm. So yeah. it's very fascinating. So my book is A Ghost in the Throat by Doreen Negrifa. It's a genre-bending book that combines biography, memoir, and perhaps fittingly since April is National Poetry Month, poetry. Author Doreen Negrifa is a contemporary Irish poet and mother who is obsessed with the 18th century Irish poet Eileen Dove Naconnell. Eileen Dove, as Negrifa usually refers to her, wrote, and ap- apologies for my pronunciation, Quina Art O'Leara, an oral lament or keen for her murdered husband, whose name is anglicized as Art O'Leary. Negrifa first read Eileen Dove's poem when she was a child in school. Years later, she finds herself wanting to learn more about her and is dissatisfied with the flimsy accounts she finds, kind of what we just talked about. She yeah. couldn't she couldn't find she couldn't really find a lot of information about her. So she sets out to research Dove's life using letters and genealogical records. And often she has to turn to the more well-documented men's lives to uncover what little she can about Dove, filling in the rest with her imagination. The book moves back and forth between the author's story and Eileen Dove's story, documenting both as Nagrifa attempts to rectify the historical erasure of women's lives and discover herself in the life of another. Much of Nagrifa's own story focuses on her life as a mother, including the difficult birth of her daughter, who was born prematurely. At the time she wrote this book, she had four children under the age of six. She explores her desire to keep having children, even though they leave her little time for anything else, including her own writing. I started listening to this lyrical book on audio, and I do highly recommend that form. The audiobook narrator is Irish, and I wouldn't have known how to pronounce any of the Irish names or quotes that appear in the book without hearing her read it. However, 
Because the book is not a linear narrative, I sometimes found it difficult to follow while driving and listening, so I checked the print book out to read too. I especially appreciated having access to both when I reached Negrifa's translation of the Quina, which is presented side by side in Irish and English. Even though I don't understand Irish, it was really lovely to listen to these incantatory rhymes written by an 18th century woman. I recommend this book to anyone interested in poetry, the buried history of women, or anyone interested in works that challenge traditional notions of biography. In structure and topic, it reminded me of a book I've talked about on the podcast before, The Paper Garden, An Artist Begins Her Life's Work at 72, by poet and nonfiction writer Molly Peacock. You might also like it if you enjoyed Jill Lepore's Book of Ages, The Life and Opinions of Jane Franklin, which I mentioned earlier. Though I personally prefer a ghost in the throat's approach to the unknown part of women's history. Lepore's more scholarly book frequently relies on conjecture rather than imagination. We have several books about Irish cooking, including Real Irish Food by David Bowers and the Farmette Cookbook, Recipes and Adventures for My Life on an Irish Farm by Iman McDonnell. There appears to be a lot of dairy in traditional Irish cooking, which is perhaps fitting as milk is a recurring image in A Ghost in the Throat. I chose to make Colcannon, a dish I've never had, because I could easily swap non-dairy butter and milk for the real things. For those of you who don't know, Colcannon is basically mashed potatoes with cooked greens mixed in. Contrary to popular belief, Bauer says the Irish most often use kale in this dish, not cabbage, so that's what I did. My husband and I both thought it was delicious. I mean, what's not to love about a base of mashed potatoes? <laughs> These just feel a little healthier than usual because of the greens. And you can find the recipe in Real Irish Food, which is available on Hoopla and in hard copy from JCPL. I remember I made that two years ago for a, a book I did. Oh, did you? Uh-huh. It, yeah. Cocaine and that stuff was good. Yeah. Did And did you make it with cabbage or with? I think we did cabbage. We didn't do the kale, but that mm-hmm. kale would be good. Yeah. And I feel like we, I don't know, we, we always have kale around yeah. a lot more than cabbage. So, but I think you can pretty much swap any green that yeah. you wanted and you can make it with sweet potatoes or oh, I've seen other good. root vegetables. I'm so hungry. <laughs> <laughs> you can't go wrong with mashed potatoes, put anything in it. <laughs> This isn't that dish at all, but we, my worker and I, we we learned to make cheesy garlicky grits mm. with like greens in them. Oh, it's so good. Oh, that does sound good. Yeah. We went to a workshop. The Pie Queen is is what she calls herself. I don't remember her actual actual name, but I I know people sometimes <laughs> put greens in macaroni and cheese too, mm-hmm. or like broccoli or something. Yeah. You know, kind mm-hmm. of the same idea to like. Get a vegetable in there, yeah. too, <laughs> mm-hmm. instead of just a starch or carb. Yeah. But as far as the book goes, listening to poetry with an Irish reader, that sounds really nice. Yes, sounds it soothing. was. It was very <laughs> soothing. 
even just to listen to without the translation in front of myself, it was just really nice to hear it. But having the book in front of me where I could see both was also really good and you know not something I, th- I think especially with poetry it's it's great to hear it as mm-hmm. well as read it and don't always take the time to do that when reading a book so so it was really really a, a nice way to do it seems like it'd be really interesting to see how they've pieced together women's history with what little record there was due to i guess being re- not recorded or or you know actively suppressed (laughs) yeah Yeah, i mean even she doesn't have a gravestone the author couldn't find her gravestone and she was in a very prominent family all of the men headstones so the author doesn't even know like where she's buried was she buried with them and just not didn't get a stone or jeez (laughs) so a lot of the story was about her search and this kind of, you know, false false starts, you know, and how you think this is going to take you somewhere, but then it just totally dries up. And yeah. So is it read kind of like going on the investigation with the author and learning the information with them? Yeah, part, partly. But like I said, she, she does also, you know, she presents things more in scenes, I think, than a scholarly writer would. One of the things that always frustrates me about scholarly biographies where they don't have a lot of information is be like, it's possible that, (laughs) you know, (laughs) rather than just like, she's just, you know, she doesn't have anything, but she's just going to imagine what happened, which, you know, I think is maybe a little more useful as a way of understanding a life or attempting to understand a life. Yeah. Yeah. Certainly make them feel more human. Mm-hmm. Yes. And not just this, like, mythological figure like George Washington. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Yeah. All right. Well, I think that we we did a pretty good job picking a, a variety of yeah. They, yeah. choices for people. Yeah. Hopefully listeners out there will find something that they enjoy reading. Yeah, yeah. yeah if you're listening, Doug... This one's for you. Is there a biography in it? Well, it goes, it's like, let's see, 300 pages, no, 261 pages, and then you can cut it down like 200 because of notes and indexes. I said the wrong word. I said biography. I mean, bibliography. Yeah. Bibliography. Yeah. <laughs> Got a, li- a lot of notes, bibliography indexes, yeah. so <laughs> right up Doug's alley. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks for listening to the Books and Bites podcast. For more information about the Books and Bites reading challenge, visit our website at justpublib.org forward slash books hyphen bites. Our theme music is The Breakers by Scott Whitten from his album In Close Quarters with the Enemy. Find out more about Scott and his music on his website, adorefordesk.com.